What role do the visual arts play in drawing upon history, activating democracy, and asking questions about what culture can do? Australian artist Anthony White lives and works in Paris. White's artistic work revolves around the notion of reclaiming the act of descent through the production of cultural objects. Through this practice, he tackles relevant questions to our time to encourage emancipation and new ways of thinking. A recipient of the Creative Art Fellowship and Martin Bequest Travelling Scholarship, White has exhibited in Australia, Europe and Asia. He's received support from the Trust Company Australia and the National Association for the Visual Arts. You can see his show Manifestation in Melbourne, Australia from the 12th to 30th of July at Lennox Street Gallery. Anthony White, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi, Mia. Thank you for having me. And so you currently have your exhibition Manifestation or Manifestation in Melbourne. Can you tell us about the roots, the inspiration behind Manifestation? Uh, well, it, it sort of came off the recent that I'd done on a mural from Sydney Nolan called the Eureka Stockade. But Manifestation is French for protest. And my work is what I've been thinking about for a long time now is around civil disobedience. And Sidney Nolan made a work uh, called The Eureka Stockade, and that's exactly what it was about. It was about this period of civil disobedience in the history of Australia, and I was captured by that. So this exhibition is a reaction to that, taking some of the energy from what I found in that archive and and interpreting it in a new way. So I haven't used images. People are probably really familiar when you say the Eureka Stockade, there's a flag that's associated with it. And I've tried to avoid using that flag. I might make work in the future with that, but I haven't for the moment. So more importantly, what I'm taking from is periods of, of history that I find inspiring to bounce off of. Yes. So when you talk about taking the energy or bouncing off of it, or maybe bearing the symbolism by not showing it, or maybe inviting the viewer, if they're familiar with that history, to fill in that space that you've left for meditating upon histories, post-colonial histories, you know, Aboriginal histories, and in your different, in your body of work, you've often taken some of these voices, but the inspiration isn't overt. No, not in terms of subject matter, not in the fact that I've taken images from, like the Eureka Stockade was a point in history where there were some gold miners and they revolted against the government because the government was enforcing licensing fees that were outrageously expensive at the time. So I don't reproduce figurative paintings, but I wanted to take that energy of what descent is about and I wanted to reclaim the energy of the gestural mark as a signifier of descent so I when I was doing the research in the library I came across a guy who who Sidney Nolan actually was reading and it was a Roman guy called Raffaele Raffaello Carboni and he wrote a book on the Eureka Stockade and it's actually the book that Sidney Nolan had been reading and it was it was actually his point of motivation for making this large mural and I found it quite interesting that Carboni he was a politically active guy he was a supporter of Mazzini who was Mazzini and Garibaldi who founded modern Italy and 
And then three years after, Carboni fought in a, the movement that unified Italy. And then three years afterwards, he actually went to Australia, to Victoria, and he was also involved in that Eureka Stockade moment. So I thought, oh, that's an interesting connection between my roots in Australia, and it's an interesting connection between the roots in Europe. So Carboni goes back and he dies in Rome. And so I see that, you know, this moment of civil disobedience is interesting. And that what's happening now with the rise of fascism, I see that, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that, you know, maybe there needs to be other moments of civil disobedience where democracy is sort of activated in a way. So I think that the visual arts, they have a role to play in terms of activating democracy, in terms of drawing upon history and asking questions of what culture can do. It's so important. And I really like this notion as well. You've discussed as action as a place for the political dissent or for telling, you know, political or socially engaged stories. And mm. so it's not, it's not quite you know, an, an evident conclusion to a lot of people who they feel like, oh, well, we have to be represented physically. But what does that free up if you're representing the energy or maybe the spirit of revolution or these histories? Yeah, absolutely. So that is what I've started since 2010. I've been researching and just really going down the rabbit hole, really, of things that speak to you at certain points in time. And I think that, you know, during 2010, I started noticing the rise of neo-fascism but when I when I did a residency in Leipzig I noticed that there was so many there was just so strong a presence of fascism that seemed to be open and very present where I was staying in lower Saxony region so I, I thought that huh. and then also it's repeated again in the British government you know rhetoric around the hostile environment and the way that asylum seekers are treated, oh, not just in Britain, but in Australia as well. So I thought that there's a lot to react to and there's a lot to take in. And I can't help it but, but be touched by those things that are happening, you know, when there's asylum seekers that come to Britain and then they disappear. There has to be some sort of oversight involved, you know, and I think that as artists, I think that I think it is a job for artists, not all artists, but I think it's a job for artists to acknowledge that, you know, culture can make a difference towards these things. It can hold people accountable more, I think. Yeah, and I think from a distance, those of us who have, say, lived in America or other countries that are on settled, uncolonized lands, look towards Australia as an example of ways countries can really make uh, peace with the past and, you know, the honoring of Aboriginal culture. And then when I've had conversations with people from Australia, they say, well, it's not as simple as that. The record isn't completely, it took a while to get there. So, you know, what are your views on that? Like what Australia does well? well and oh, well, I mean, today, the thing is that there is amnesia 
And I mean, Australians, I mean, myself included, you grow up in this state of amnesia because what happened is that the British stole the land from the Aboriginal people. We made up a fiction, the fiction of Terra Nullius, and then we basically disclaimed any relationship that the Aboriginal people had to the, to the land. So, and I mean, you know, the, the National Day in Australia is the day marked by colonisation, which is, is shameful. So that's, that's another long conversation. And I think that whether things are better or worse in the United States, but I do know that is the conversation there has only just begun in Australia. And there's a new openness that never has been before. Yeah. I mean, I think that from what I've heard and what the general impression is that Australia has is further along that path, you know, towards the reconciliation and the honoring culture. And I was told, you know, by a senior curator at the Smithsonian Museum for the American Indian that in America, because there have been a number of tragedies there, and one, the legacy of slavery, and the other, the treatment of Native Americans, the loss of, you know, so so much, but they can only, like, maybe hold one defining tragedy in their mind at once. And so, you know, slavery is kind of further along that path towards, but it's unfortunate. So we've had some of these conversations with people who wanted to, you know, get programs off the ground more in in America, including by Australian, you know, (laughs) cultural workers saying, you know, who were based in the U.S. now. Now, but who found it a little bit more difficult because of that. And I imagine. And it's interesting. So you focus a lot of these stories about people who might be, you know, lost through the erasures of like losing their home or talking about refugees or, or migrants mm-hmm. who like adaptation is about almost erasing their identity. Yeah. I based one exhibition off a book by Kafka called In the Penal Colony. And that was an exhibition that I did in Sydney. And I based it off that book because the context of the book happens on an island context with archetypal characters who are like the commander, the the tourist, the traveler. And in the book, it's sort of like quite theatrical because it's very sparsely written. It's a small book as well. But you get the idea. For me, it really spoke to me of Australia. So it's like a penal colony that the the text is written about. And On this penal colony, there's a torture device and the people that go there are prisoners and they have their punishment tattooed on their body. And so there was an old commander who was saying that, you know, the machine is great. It's a modern invention. This is progress. Everything is great on this island. But there was also something about it that I just really became aware of how the plight of asylum seekers, it was just so parallel in my mind that I could see and feel that this piece of text, it just rings true today. And it was printed, I think, in 1919. So I did the exhibition in 2018, going into 2019. I thought that there's something about history repeating and history being mirrored And that's the great thing about art is that there's these concepts that keep coming back. And I just, it spoke to me because this fictitious island in the story sounds like the place where I live, right? Like an island that was a penal colony, one that was stolen off the people that originally owned it. So there was a lot of parallels in my mind that I just, you know, really spoke to me. That's what art 
you know, like the motivation for making art comes from somewhere, you know, and there's great. And so it's quite fascinating to think about what the shadow of being founded as a penal colony and what the shadow of incarceration or the shadow of colonizing a country, what that does, there's a legacy of trauma. And, and if you think about a certain pr- proportion of those sent away to Australia were themselves colonized, say if they were from Ireland and punished for many of them, quite small crimes, crimes of need and necessity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then that sort of mirrors, I did an exhibition in 2019 in the UK, actually, and I called it The Curious Eye Never Runs Dry. And that was actually a phrase that Julian Assange had said to Chelsea Manning. And I thought that was quite poetic in the sense that, yeah, The Curious Eyes Never Run Dry. I took that as a line for like, reinvigorating democracy, it's pretty clear to understand that we're going through a moment of democratic decline. And my role as an artist, do you sort of go, well, what does painting have to do with democracy? And democracy is something that like you take it for granted. But I really am motivated by the fact that the more research I do, the more I realize that democracy is declining. And so that's another reason that I was led towards this moment of civil disobedience in the work of Sidney Nolan, because I thought that is a point in democracy which tilted in Australian history. And I think that in not so much in our Western societies, because democracies, well, some would say, but it's pretty vibrant and it's pretty strong. But in many countries, actually, it seems to be slipping. And so you sort of say, oh, yeah, you know, the more that you dig around and the more that you read, there's many things that need to be need to be sort of addressed and, and many things that are ignored. I mean, even the fact that Julian Assange is still in prison after all this time and he still hasn't faced the music, he hasn't gone to court, he's still in this sort of place of limbo and he's in he's in democracy. So you have to ask yourself questions. What's going on? Is democracy, and I use like a word from this in the penal colony book, because the machine that was giving the torture and punishment on the prisoners in this novel was called the apparatus. Like, is that what we live in? Do we live in the apparatus? If you don't say anything and don't do anything, then you have no punishment. But as soon as you react... Like, for example, the Chinese government is undertaking actions against its citizens in other countries. It's quite an interesting thing that's happening in the world right now. So I feel motivated that looking at the history of civil disobedience within the visual arts is really important for me at this point in time. Yeah, democracy is under threat, even in those strong democracies. And there are arguments to be made that democracy exists, but they're alongside a an overwhelming corporatocracy or the different influences and the lobbyists that, you know, undermine that democracy and the exercise of individual freedoms. So we're given infinite choice, say, on in a capitalist system, small choices. But if you want to question the system itself, well, that's sacrosanct. And you can have, how do you say, you, you can be punished as you, for exactly for speaking out, for exercising those rights. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how you use your art as a kind of Trojan horse to move forward these ideas, to ask these questions and to leave spaces for people's answers. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's what engages with me. I think I'm just sort of reacting to things that touch me. And I feel that for your art to touch people, then it sort of starts with the artist getting touched first, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. And yeah, it moves us and and invites us to go deeper into uncovering these histories, do our own research, because the passion of your research shows through, even if it is an abstract image, we can see there's a struggle going on. There's a kind of dance, some of the paintings to go through your different styles and mediums and formats show a kind of like almost a dancing movement, not exactly figures, but they seem to be movements or dancers. Yeah, it's about finding form through using your body and you can see throughout history that repeated like with artists like from the gutai movement in japan after the world war when they used actual performances in mud and throwing themselves through rice paper barriers and doing performances around these things and also other artists actually that use a lot of gestural and bodily movements. Artists like Emilio Vedova, the Italian artist, Venetian. He did a lot of work and he said that art that was abstract had to be political, which was interesting because you'd actually think the opposite. You would think that art would have to have a subject matter that related to some obvious political reference, whether it be a image of a protest or image of a of a battle or a massacre or something that related to that but no his stance was the fact that his work was a resistance and he was involved in a resistance group during the second world war called Corenti with Renato Guttoso as well. I found that interesting that as you unfold it, I I guess maybe the the purely figurative or the documentary style realist painting might be recording something that happened, but perhaps Mm. something that breaks free of the figural can be something about manifesting an energy that could go forward and beyond into the future. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, not all of your painting has this kind of energy or or kind of figurative movements or dance. There's some that Mm. are working with textures or heavy impasto. You know, how do you decide what's appropriate for a a series and the feeling and the, the thoughts you want to convey? Well, that generally is about what it is that I want to convey. Yeah, I do make different series of work. So, I mean, most of the landscape work that I'm making is heavily impastoed oil paintings, which are made with brushes and palette knives. And I was motivated to make a series of works, a body of works about the condition, the climate catastrophe, just just really because of a short amount of time that when I left Australia in the last you know, years or so, the climate crisis has really hit areas of Australia in a, such a dramatic way. And I just started to make some paintings about that. And... um. That was a method of making the painting landscape orientated, different areas in Tasmania, actually. So, yeah, I also felt that urgency to make the painting at that time. Yeah, so I will still continue to make landscape paintings. I think that, you know, growing up in Australia and colonial legacy of landscape painters, but like, you know, the sailors, they had the tradition of actually drawing and painting 
as like that was their basic skills once upon a time. And so they could draw and paint, obviously in a pretty prescriptive way. But Australia is still quite fascinated with the landscape. But when you grow up there, it's definitely something that stays within you. But I think that the story of the landscape, like especially because it's not ours as an Australian, right? It will be interesting to see how that develops in the future and what happens with the story of Australian landscape and this story of Aboriginal landscape to come. You know, it is an exciting place because Aboriginal person's perspective of landscape is much different because there's so many stories Yeah, I always like this concept of the song lines. Yes. It's beautiful. I just remember Bruce Chatwin's, you know, I thought, oh, that's nice. Yeah. So having this deep connection to the land, which I think is unavoidable, being born in Australia, which I just was told by Joel Gerges, lead author of the IPCC report, that Australia has the most biodiversity in the world. And you think like compared to the Amazon. And so it must be for you, the Black Summer, you need to see these ancient forests and to see so much and the wildlife and just devastating due to climate change. Yeah, look, Black Summer, when you grow up in Australia, you always have that recognition and the memory. You always have the memory of smoke in the summer and You always have the memory of going through the bush where it's absolutely devastated. But things grow back at an incredible speed afterwards. It's really quite incredible to see that new growth. But it's part of Australian life that's pretty difficult to sort of describe. It's the heat, the dryness, the stillness, and it's the noise of Australia. But it's also that smell of fire. And with climate change, we've hit this other part, which is normally there'd be fires going everywhere. And, you know, you sort of like grow up with that in the back of your mind that like, if all of these fires connect, then you sort of have this sort of like, where are we going to go, right? Because you get surrounded. So it is a pretty scary situation. Yeah, and we now even have fires in the Arctic. And so, you know, we're in trouble or we're not doing a good job of being stewards of the planet when we're allowing ice to catch fire. I mean, I don't know how wrong you can get. No, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Not the forest, just the the ice, the uh, the permafrost. And yeah, so your paintings that they meditate on this, but also highlight the sense of urgency, because we have to not just honor the beauty of nature, but like, ask ourselves what each one of us can do on individual and national larger basis to preserve and protect the environment. Yeah, definitely. I think in a sense of urgency is paramount and that it is for artists and for activists to be able to to communicate that to other people, definitely, so that they can inspire people to make changes. And you've spoken about how Australia has inspired many of these works, the sense of the land and the the memory. And I guess the the other big influence on or where you've been based the longest, I think it is France. Yeah. How has that fed into your whole, you know, the symbolism and the whole, your pictorial world? Well, I think that France is a big thing. Mostly, I mean, because I was a chef at the same time as when I was training to be an artist and I spent a long time in kitchens. So, you know, in terms of culture, culture in its fullest sense of cuisine, cooking, 
the making of stuff with your hands and the same in the studio, right? Making things with your hands and shaping things and coming back to them. And there's something very gratifying and pleasing about that. But not only that, but it's also about history and this French curiosity about history as well, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And their support of, of artists and also their tolerance. Paris is a place of tolerance and being like this accepting place where lots of other artists have come before in the past and stayed. That is an interesting thing. Paris in particular, but France broadly, this internationalism, which we can see, it's very evident if you go into any bookshop, the number of books in translation, the percentage, it's almost close to 50%. I mean, there are a lot of problems, of course, and there's wallpaper over that, but there is also this pride in, in learning and in accepting other cultures and being a place that's home to other cultures and, and artists from abroad. Yeah, there is there is a pride in accepting other cultures, especially actually food's a funny thing because food actually is a place of non-judgment because cuisine, the meal, is a place actually of coming together. And if it's another cuisine, that's exciting but, and you see it in other countries, other cultures aren't always accepted with open arms. And that's the thing that's fascinating, isn't it? Because there are countries like France and there are other countries that take pride in their culture, first and foremost, right? But then, you know, like everybody loves to think that they've got the best culture, you know? But food's an exception, right? They say, oh, look at this this is really great i guess there's other examples as well in fashion and things like that but it's interesting it would be great if we accepted people and you can't speak in blacks and whites of course there's gray areas as well right but when you see media things about in the uk immigrants are like spoken about like as cockroaches then you know something's not right that is, when you hear those things, you go, my God, what's happening, right? So there's a there's a bit of a difference there. So I think that it's good to be more understanding and to be compassionate in society. So what is being a chef teacher? Because that's, that's a collaborative art. It's not like painting, you have much more time. <laughs> so... Oh, yeah, you do have much more time. But, you know, in the studio, you're under pressure as well to produce uh, constantly. Uh, yeah, you know, the kitchen is much more shorter. In that respect, yeah. I mean, it's good because you discover things about teamwork. You discover things in a very short amount of time about conflict and resolution and working with teams and taught me how to prioritize a bit better than what I had been doing in the past. And it's an extremely creative place, especially when you have good relationships with the people that you work for and there's a trust involved in that you have some sort of input into the menu, input into making changes. So that's quite good, yeah. That builds confidence. And working as a team is good. And I imagine it tells you a lot about the culture too, because it depends on which kitchens you're in, but there's a big immigrant population who work, you know, behind the scenes. You yeah. Know. It could tell you a lot about really many elements of society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You work with every nationality in every kitchen everywhere. It's a funny environment, actually, because you have like a, such a diverse range of people. Like you have uh, people that are immigrants, so they might be washing dishes or doing jobs in the kitchen. And when you work with great chefs, 
you also have like people that come and work for free because they want to know how things are prepared. So you have this eclectic mix of people in the kitchen. It's interesting. Yes, those who serve and and those who eat. Tell me a little bit about your formation as an artist. You have a particular teacher, I believe, from Romania that... My teacher was a painter called Aida Tomescu, a Romanian painter, and she immigrated to Australia. And I met her about five years before I started art school, actually. You know, conversations are the most important things and conversations that resonate, actually, because you can't underestimate those things are really important to make sure that you make room for those to grow the conversation with different artists. So I met Ada, a teacher at my art school, but I met her at a, a couple of exhibitions previously, and she just encouraged me to come to art school and to come and study at this particular school because it had a focus on painting and that's what I wanted to do when I was a bit younger. So I went to the school and I studied painting there. And then after that, I won a a scholarship to go to New York. And then after that, I came to Paris. Yeah. It's fascinating how one finds one's voice in art. Something that takes a while. Were you born with the confidence or that how did you develop that to know? Well, the thing is that you can't make things that are perfect. That doesn't exist. Like, And then you look at things that are perfect, like in the sense that they have a high degree of finish and they're not that interesting, right, to the eye. So... After a long amount of time with creating work, it's like there's something about the ones that are the struggle, the ones that you've messed up a lot. These are the ones that engage you more than the other ones that just sort of came easy or or that you judge them to be the most complete and perfect, right? It's a process because it's not really about your will. It's also a little bit about having that accident come You know, it's like the surprise, actually. You bring these references. I guess that's why I'm interested in history and pulling all these references from history. To some people, you can go, what? It's a bit incomprehensible, all these references from history. But it's not about that. It's about the thing that happens when you put them all together. It's a bit like drawing and painting and collage and, you know, those things exist in other forms, right? Collage and film and music and all of these other things that something happens when they come from diverse places. It's unexpected. That's where the art sort of happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's true. And even though it's not quite evident in the abstract works they can be kind of like ghosts ghosts of history you know echoes and then and seeing them there becomes part of the creative process of the viewer and and maybe in that way they can also become like artists themselves to be able to imagine you know then their story gets added to it I, I find that's always fascinating and you spoke about needing to find what's interesting in the work or being very important to have meaning in a work a specific meaning for you some people are different than that they're like oh the joy of color and and they're like they've maybe it's the absence of meaning that pleases them but why is it important for you for each work to have a a meaning a reason for being oh i think because we live in an amnesiac society don't we you know like that all these things happen in history and things are happening alongside of us right now and people don't see it or they choose not to see it. I mean, there's one thing which is trauma, is the fact that things are too great to see because you can't handle it. So countries and people forget, right? People forget what happened to them because the trauma is too great for them. 
And, you know, one could argue that a country could forget because the trauma is too great for it as well. But that's the role of artists to remember. And the role of artists is to to facilitate that remembering in a way through the production of their work. That's important. It's important to me because you have to say something. You know, I'm one of the people that when I feel something, I have to say something. That's the thing. And the joy of colour is there's nothing wrong with that either, with other artists that make paintings that are explosive and colourful. You know, Joseph Albers, one of the most colourful artists that explored colour in a really joyous way, but in a scientific way as well, he said that colour can be relative, political and volatile. You know, he didn't say joyous and warm and fuzzy. He said, like, relative... He said volatile. Volatile is something that's explosive. Volatility has to do with power. That's a a tremendous way to describe colour. And those qualities, I guess, you know, that is what kids relate to, right, is this emotive quality that comes with colour. And that's just what happens when you use it, which is exciting too. But... That's just one thing. That's just the basic straightforward thing. But I think that you can I think that you can use color in paintings to do other things than just that. Experience joy, right? There's much more than just that. Yes, of course. There's strong symbolism that acts on us in many ways that we can't even understand or on an unconscious level. And I think it's interesting that you said we live in an amnesia. I love this phrase, an amnesia state, because we have not only we have the loss of indigenous knowledge, but we have just this loss of knowledge or expertise that used to be passed on through intergenerational knowledge, despite the fact we have all these devices where we've sort of outsourced our our memories to them. But we we can become more and more amnesiac, the more access to information and our devices that remember things for us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We have to make that effort. I think when something's effortful, I feel you really remember it yourself. If it becomes too easy, like on my phone, will remember it for me. Then yeah. in a sense, it's, you know, it's just on the surface. It doesn't become a part of you, like physically a part of you. Yeah. Well, that's what drawing is, isn't it? Because drawing is an act of observation and then you remember it in your body and then you can walk into any museum And you'll know the paintings that you've seen and then you'll know the paintings that you've drawn because you never forget a painting that you've drawn because you've been standing in front of it for hours doing a drawing. So, yeah, observation is important and remembering is important as well. Yeah. And you think about the process of the the masters or just the old process uh, where we didn't have these devices to photograph or to quickly take down something. There was the stages of drawing, the cartoon, the different layers of the coloring. So by the time a painting was made, it really had to mean something to an artist because it had to mean something and stay yeah. fresh through all those stages. Stages, yeah, yeah, because it was such a longer process. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. And then those paintings were made over an extended period of time. It wasn't just a matter of weeks. It was a matter of years. I think that's also the change in the art world as well because there's pressure on artists to produce lots and lots of work. You know, so somewhere along the line, artists need to get better and quicker at it, right? So I guess that's where technology comes in. And of course, you have this 
process where a number of contemporary artists do have their assistants and they have their ateliers and, you know, to fulfill the market, which is a lot quicker now. But the old apprenticing, the atelier, we, we work the, under the master painter. I'm also, in a way, a little bit sentimental for this whole system because it was also a way of teaching that we is not preserved in, in a lot of aspects of society where and we're an educational initiative, but there isn't enough apprenticing, like really learning your no. trade under someone who knows and is experienced. Yeah, I think that, that maybe does still exist, but not in the same way that you used to. You know, when you think about the Renaissance, that somebody would go to a master when they're 14 or 13 and spend four years drawing and doing sketches and you know, by the time you're 20, you've had like good solid experience. You definitely need that experience before you can articulate your ideas with fluidity. Same as the kitchen, right? Learning to use pans and hold things and, you know, getting used to things. It takes time. Yeah, it takes time. I think that all the great things take time and art is something that gives that time back to us, for that reflection, even an image that is yeah. over time can then settle in our mind. And that's what I think that you do beautifully in, in your art is give that time for reflection back to us. So as you think about the future and education and the importance of the arts, what were some important life lessons for you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think that persistence is paramount. Not giving up is, you know, there's moments when things are easy and careers are going well. And and then there's other moments when things naturally sort of taper off. And then, you know, like establishing yourself is one thing and then being in your middle of career and then late career, there's always times when things will go really well and other times when things will go really bad. But, you know, just keeping going is important quality to have. And not to take no, don't listen to what people tell you. If they tell you no, just keep going anyway, you know. If people listen to no, there'll never be any art. <laughs> it's so true. It doesn't come on the first try. It is, of course, no. the settling of time. So thank you, Anthony White, for the curiosity you. of your eye, which never thank runs you. dry, um, for you. your artistic and intellectual curiosity, the manifestation of your empathy, commitment to human rights, the environment, and uncovering histories that reveal the complexities of life. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative thank process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Podcast Producer was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.